episode of the Vel News Podcast brought to us by our good friends at Feedback Sports. They're that company that makes those uh, trainers and, and uh, workstand stuff, yeah? That's right, Dane. Feedback Sports is a company of cyclists who understand the importance of having reliable and well-thought-out equipment. Let me emphasize well-thought-out. They make tools, workstands, storage bike racks, trainers, and all of these things are exceptionally well thought out to do things like, oh, maximize space and be able to fit in areas where you otherwise would not be able to fit them. The important things. Yeah, it's true. So you're going to see them at national, local, and even international events. Our friends at Feedback Sports say, if you see a Feedback Sports representative, please come up say hello and ask them about some of their cool new products. So the product I want to talk about that I think is exceptionally cool that Feedback makes is the Omnium Portable Trainer. You may have seen some uh, regional pro teams or a lot of cyclocross racers using this to warm up. The Omnium Pro Trainer, it's a simple fork mounted design with like rollers in the rear. And the whole thing folds up you can put it in a little bag and, and take it with you. It folds up to the size of like a little bit bigger than a football. That's pretty handy. It's super handy. Yeah. And well thought out products from Feedback Sports, makers of the Omnium Portable Trainer. Check them out today. And if you see them at races, go up to them and please say hello. Thanks to Feedback Sports for sponsoring this week's episode. Okay, let's get on with the show. You're tuned into the Vel News Podcast. I'm Fred Dreyer here with Dane Cash. Spencer is licking his wounds having competed in the Belgian waffle ride this past weekend, which looked really difficult, about 130 miles of dirt, gravel, lots of climbs. So check out velnews.com for his report from the Belgian waffle ride. But Dane, no one wants to hear about the Belgian waffle ride. We want to hear about your adventures in Belgium because, uh, well, the listeners have been listening to you and Hoodie and uh, not so much of me for the last month. But before we get to the racing today, I got to ask you, Dane, give me a story from Belgium. What was your best, what's the memory from Belgium this year that's going to stand out? Oh, man. Uh, rain, I think, is probably the predominant memory coming from Belgium. Okay. Just rain the entire time. No, I think the predominant memory, probably that the, the uh, EF training ride, the, the, the recon, uh, the pair of Roubaix cobbles, and I got a chance to sit in the back of that uh, team car as I did the recon. And it ended up being a little bit less muddy on the day of the race. But the day that we did the uh, the course recon out there, it was just covered in mud, which was, I felt kind of bad for the riders, but not really because it was really awesome to watch that uh, from the team car, from the comfort of the team car. No, that was a good piece taking us inside the EF Education First uh, recon ride, talking with Andres Clear about some of the direction that he gave the riders prior to Roubaix and basically just saying like, okay, this is where the move is going to go. These are the cobbles that are hard. These are the cobbles that are really hard because he's ridden it, what, like, I don't know, dozens of times. Yeah, it's crazy. I'd actually heard that he was nicknamed GPS Clear and then... Uh, yeah, being in the car, it, it's like every single minute detail. He knows every single one. He's on the radio the whole time. It's like, okay, the crosswind's going to come from here, and then it's going to change direction, and then it's going to go here and there. I, I don't know how this guy fits all that information in his head, but it was, it was pretty awesome to be in the car for that. And the, the mud uh, on the cobbles made it a pretty entertaining ride as well, getting out every now and then and watching them, like Sepp Van Marke going over those cobbles during the recon. He 
he dropped the rest of the EF guys just like you would expect him to uh, on a number of those cobbled muddy sections. So that's pretty cool. Pretty cool to watch. All right. Well, that sounds like a pretty cool experience that you had over in Belgium. I was there last year, and most of my cool experiences involved a lot of... A lot of beer. Well, Fred, I was too busy working hard. That's good, Dane. That. Uh, so I, I didn't have a single drop of, of alcohol the entire time I was there. I'm sure. I'm sure. Don't you confirm were that with a hoodie, but yeah. yeah. Very good boy. Yeah. Well, we appreciated your reporting from that block of racing. But Dane, we have a new block of racing to talk about because uh, as it is one to do when the cycling season ends with the cobbled classics, we are on to the hilly classics those found in the southern part of Belgium and in the Limburg region of the Netherlands, this, of course, being the Ardennes races, Amstel Gold Race, Liège, Bestone Liège, and Flesch Wallonne. And we had Amstel this past weekend. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, as a person who's been to Amstel several different times, and I've actually ridden the course on multiple time, uh, multiple occasions, Amstel is deceivingly hard. You know, a lot of times these races get a bit overshadowed by the cobbled classics because we equate riding over cobblestones with pain and struggle. Amstel is so hard. Um, I mean, I'm, I've never raced the pro race, but just riding the course, it's death by a thousand cuts. There are 35 or so of these super steep climbs that just you have to be on the gas just to make it to the top of them. And it's like, as soon as you get to the top, you are on the descent, flat, 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 and then on to another one. And just from an effort perspective, it's basically like ramping it up to, you know, a, a, a very difficult stout effort multiple times over the day just to like stay in the course. And you can't really take a mental break either because of all the the, wind, the bendy roads. I mean, you, you go up those climbs and then when you come down on the descents, if you take a second off, if you, if you take your eyes off the road for a second, you're going to go flying off the road and hit some piece of road furniture. Yeah, what I always tell people is the Amstel course looks like someone uh, took a plate of spaghetti and then just threw it on a map and all of the winding, twisting noodles going everywhere is actually the route. There's not a, it seems like there's not a section of straight road yeah the, the organizers refer to the course as having laps finishing laps like there's three laps but lap would imply there's some kind of like order to it yeah spaghetti i think is really what it is and when you talk to the riders that do these races they do talk about um, one of the challenges is just staying on it because you're going through these towns and because you're on these twisty narrow little roads there are crashes there's a lot of anxiety positioning is key and it is 230 50 whatever kilometers of just having to be hyper-focused because the moment you lose focus, you're losing 10 positions in the pack, you're getting spit out the back, there's an acceleration around a turn, and all of a sudden that space that you worked so hard to get up to in the peloton is gone. I remember talking to a, a rider, this would have been 12 years ago, and he was a supremely talented cyclist, American rider, lots of natural talent, won a lot of races in the domestic circuit, and he went over there for Amstel, and he was just beside himself because he was like, it makes it doesn't make any difference how fit you are in the race. Yeah. It just comes down to where you are in the pack, how well you know the course, because you know there's a turn coming up and a 180 and another twist and a tw another twist. And it's just how smart you are as opposed to how strong you are. I think we talk about that a lot for the cobbles, too. We talk about how the Belgian guys are just so much better because they grow up around it. But people maybe don't realize how important it is to grow up around these climbs and these roads for the Ardennes Classics too. Yeah, because so much of it is efficiency. It's like if you don't know the course and if you are all brawn and no brains, you're going to be hitting the brakes, 
like three times every kilometer, getting out of the saddle and sprinting to catch back up to the group. And if you know the course, you can plan for these twists and turns. You know when the climbs are coming and you can just be that much more efficient. And oftentimes that means you have that much more power in your legs when the race is getting decided in those final kilometers. That may be one reason why the Americans haven't done so well in the Ardem Classics for a little while. Very true. Well, we're going to get to that because we had a good American ride. So, Dane, before we get into our takes and our opinions and our flaming hot uh, takes and arguments that we're going to be having around this, give us a rundown. What happened during Amstel? Well, I think this Amstel was more exciting than in recent editions, many recent editions, because a lot of the times the past uh, five, six, seven years have sort of just come down to the Kahlberg. Uh, organizers made a couple of changes to the finish the last uh, two, three years. The uh, A final ascent of the Kahlberg was dropped, so things got a little bit opened up now. You, you can't just wait to the Kahlberg to sprint up uh, anymore. And what we got on uh, Sunday was uh, a relatively impressive early breakaway. No, no huge name riders in there, but they managed to hold out for quite a while. Uh, but then with about 20, 25K to go, things really heated up. You saw the favorites group start to attack each other, and, and you actually started to see some of the big names trying to get clear, which we haven't really seen in the last couple of years. You saw some attempted moves from Valverde, for instance, and Sagan tried a, a sort of a Pere Roubaix-esque move at one point. He didn't really put in a huge dig. He just kind of rolled off the front a little bit. But it was nice to see some actual action. But in terms of what actually went down, uh, Michael Vargren comes away with the win because he kind of outfoxed a group of big favorites. You have Valverde, Sagan, uh, Alaphilippe, Julian Alaphilippe, all there in the in the lead group towards the end of the race. And... Uh, yeah, Michael Vaughan attacked them when they were busy looking at each other, and nobody really closed it down except for Roman Kreuziger. He was the only guy to to, to go with uh, Vaughan, and the two were able to stay away in, in the uh, final two three kilometers. And Vaughan really played Kreuziger in the finale, kind of made him set up the sprint, uh, and then just blew past him. And with with Enrico Gasparato taking the uh, third place is uh, yet another podium finish for Enrico Gasparato. Yeah, there were a lot of former Amstel winners throwing haymakers in that finale with at one point Gasparato and Kreuziger escaping away from the group. And boy, when they went, this was right before the Kauberg, I was thinking to myself, my God, they're riding so fast. They looked like they were just chugging away. It's their Super Bowl. So yeah. It's the race they go for every year, man. Uh, one of the takeaways that I'm going to have from watching this year's Amstel was it really did look like lots of effort and lots of attacks went down in this race. You know, sometimes in Amstel, the pace can be frantic and the racing can be a little on edge, but you're not seeing guys get out of the saddle and really just, you know, throwing haymakers at each other, except for the end or right before the Cowberg and then up the Cowberg. Whereas I felt like the last 20 kilometers of this race was just a repeated um, you know, back and forth of surge, catch back on, surge, catch back on with guys, you know, if, if Sagan's winning move at Paris-Roubaix was to discreetly roll off the front at Amstel, every single move was like head down, butt in the air, in the drops, attack and really put down a lot of effort. Yeah. And it wasn't just people on Roompot. I mean, it was real, real, like real favorites that were actually trying, trying to get away. There, there were some Roompot attacks as well, but there were a couple of big names that actually tried to get away. So there was this sense of how is this going to play out that we haven't had in years past where it's just always been the Kahlberg. It's always been the same thing in the finale. So that was really entertaining. Actually. So how would you rate the overall viewing experience as a TV watcher? I think compared to recent editions of Amstel, for me, it's like five out of five. Compared to you know any race in the calendar, maybe four out of five. But this was a really impressive Amstel because we actually got to see some entertaining stuff in the finale. So 
definitely a, a nice improvement from recent years. And yeah, I mean, compared to like Roubaix or Flanders, I think for me, the viewing experience was right up there. Because with Roubaix, you, you kind of knew for the last 10 minutes how it was going to play out. But uh, this one, I didn't really, we didn't know. I, mean, I had no idea what was going to happen until the very, very end. I'm with you. I think it was an interesting Amstel. The caveat there being an Am, it being that it was Amstel. Yeah. I am uh, to the snobbery level of my Sunday watching that, you know, unless it's Flanders or Roubaix or maybe Liege, best on Liege, I'm not going to put too many stakes on what's going on. And so it was a pleasant surprise, I will say, yeah. to see the final coming down to, yeah, all these heavy hitters who sometimes I, I've always wanted to see them going against each other. It is it is sort of that uh, hypothetical, like, man, what if Peter Sagan and Alejandro Valverde were throwing haymakers at each other? Yeah, Who's going to win? That's, first of all, that's an excellent accent. By the yeah. Way. But second of all, yeah, this was the start list of this race was incredible. I mean, all of the most of the big cobbled classics guys, maybe all of them, even that were the big favorites during that that period, and all the Arden guys, the same race, and so. Unfortunately, I don't think we're going to get the same thing at Liege, but... Uh. No, I don't think so either. So maybe Amstel will... Amstel 2018 will go down as the race where we got to see favorites from disparate parts of pro cycling um, punching each other in the face for 20 kilometers. And, you know, there's stuff to be said about that. Definitely. I mean, we only, usually only get that at Worlds. That's kind of the only race usually where you kind of see that kind of thing. So. so chapeau to Astana. As you mentioned, Dane, Astana were both smart and skilled in that they had two strong men in that final breakaway with Michael Valgren and they had Jakob Fuglzong. And I was very impressed with the riding of Jakob Fuglzong because I tend to think of him as a man for the long climbs, as a guy for the high mountains. And yet here he was at Amstel, out of the saddle, putting in really powerful attacks that would last, you know, 25, 30 seconds and then regrouping and then going again. And it's those type of efforts that you're not, I don't necessarily associate with him. Um, it, it brought back memories of watching him race mountain bikes 12 years ago. I saw him win the U23 World Mountain Bike Championship. And, you know, he's able to put a lot of power into the pedals for those short bursts. And he did that over and over and over again um, to chase down Valverde, to chase down that poor Roompot guy, to to really not just whittle down the group, but also bring the group back together on a few different occasions. And it seemed like when he was done putting in his efforts, that's when Valgren went, went. He went once, and it was a blistering attack. And that first attack, I thought was going to do it. And it was Tim Wellens that brought him back. But in doing so, that was the end of Tim Wellens. Yeah. And then when Valgren went away again... I think it was up to Sagan to have gone in that moment. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think Sagan had another bullet in the chamber. Yeah, I think he exhausted all of his bullets over the course of Gent Webelcom and Flanders and Roubaix. But yeah, I, I think I, I didn't give Fulsong enough love in my in my brief recap. He did a whole lot of work and just Valgren just teed it up for Valgren. So uh but at the same time, we should give Valgren some love too, because this is an incredibly talented guy. We've been kind of hearing about him as an up-and-comer for, it seems like, five or six years now. I mean, people have been talking about him as this big, big talent, but it took him a little while to put it together. He had some crashes. I know last year he had a big crash during the Arden Classics, but uh, this is not just some uh, this is not just some Yahoo coming out of nowhere. He's definitely a very talented guy who's finally starting to put it all together, as we've seen between Omloop, uh, Amstel. He was fourth at Flanders ahead of some big favorites. So, Also, Valgren loves hot takes. In fact, last year at the Tour de France, when Fabio Aru lost the yellow jersey, 
Valgren came in with the guns of blazing hot takes. I think everyone should Google that and watch the video because the interviewers, I was standing there with Steve Schlanger and we were like, what? Because he basically threw uh, Aru under the bus. Yeah. He was just like, yeah, uh, Aru didn't know what the heck he was doing. And uh, we were all left a little speechless. So I saw Mark Cavendish after Amstel tweeted his sort of uh, respect for, or he kind of gave props to Valgren, said he was a great guy. And I wonder if it's if it's because he gives these hot takes, because we know Mark Cavendish also sometimes likes to provide hot takes mm, to the media. Lover, yeah. lover of the hot take. Yeah, yeah. So do we have any takes of our own from this year's Amstel Gold Race? Dane, did anyone completely, totally screw the pooch? I don't think anybody... See, I, I come away from a lot of these races and I think, well, somebody could have done something differently, but I can't really blame Valverde, Alaphilippe, or Sagan. Those are the, the big three, I think, that were the favorites out of that group. I can't really blame any single one of them for not chasing Valgren. You can kind of understand why nobody did. I think they also maybe just weren't strong enough. So I'm not thinking anyone really dropped the ball, but Sky was pretty disappointing to me. I mean, Mikhail Kwiatkowski has this weird way of whenever he's like a favorite... He just he can disappear. And that happens a lot. And then right when you think uh, Mikhail Kwiatkowski must be out of form, like he goes and wins Worlds or San Remo or Tirreno Adriatico. So I don't I don't really know what that means. I, I do think that Sky was expected. I expected them to do a lot more. And they were doing some work. So I don't really know what all that was for, if, if not to set up Kwiatkowski or an hour or somebody. But they weren't even in the top 10. Yeah, I was pretty su- impressed. Or I was pretty surprised as well. I tuned in with about 50K to go. And Wote Pools was being like dropped at that point. Yeah, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, Wote Pools, you are a big deal racer. And these are dense races. I mean, they're not your Olympics, but these are big races for you. Home so turf. I was very surprised to see him getting tailed off the back. Yeah. I mean, he's coming back from injury, but, but still, I, yeah, you'd expect him. I mean, he's a Liege winner. So you'd think he'd be out and, and on home turf, you'd think he'd be up there, but, but even if he drops, okay, well, they have other options. They've got it now. They've got Kwiatkowski, but neither of those guys really seem to be capable of being up there. But then I feel like this has happened every single year. Like they, they kind of disappear in a race, and then you're like, oh, Sky must not be doing so well. And then while wow, Pools wins Liege, or yeah, Kwiatkowski wins San Remo, so hard to say. There are some riders that I feel like if you want to nitpick, you can be somewhat critical of. I thought that Wellens um, fired off a couple bullets a little bit too early. Um, the the pack was still pretty big when he put in a couple surges, and then he was the one that chased down the first attack by Valgren instead of, oh, I don't know, maybe gambling and letting someone else do it. And after he chased down the attack, that was the that was the end of him. I I also thought that Sagan he rode the front a lot. Once yeah. that final group was established, he liked to be on the front. Um, I don't know if that's a control thing. If he feels like, you know, being up there, he's a little bit in better position if um, Valverde's attack is going to attack. Because I think at that point, everyone probably was looking to Val- at Valverde yeah, yeah. to go in that moment. Um, Valverde did put in a pretty sizable uh, move to bridge across to uh, Fuglesang. I believe that was on the – I can't remember. I think it was the final climb. So many bergs out there, man. There's like the eyebrows <laughs> berg and the chin berg and the mouth yeah. berg. Berg. Yeah, definitely. The the gulpen, big Gulpenberg. I think it was the the, well, the Hulhemmerberg or whatever that last one is called that Rob Hatch like pronounces perfectly every time. Yeah, impressively uh, that he almost uh, almost got some separation up, but the climb just wasn't long enough. And those last two climbs actually, they're not. I don't think they're they're hard enough for Valverde to really put any space between himself and anybody else. But in terms of like takeaways and looking ahead. Valverde looks strong to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I, he might not have come away with the result that he was expecting or that even I, I actually thought he was going to go in and win the race. I think ahead of the race, he was my predictive winner. But 
he still looked very strong. I think ahead of Flesh Wallone and Liege, like he's got nothing to worry about because he was definitely out there in good form. The Peterberg. That's, you know, Peter Berg from Aspen Extreme. Yeah, yeah. That was the Berg that I was waiting for. That should be in every race. Yeah. <gasps> uh, what ta- what takeaways then do we have from this race? I mean, you just said it there. Valverde is looking strong. I mean, he knows how to win both Flesh Wallone and Liege Best on Liege. So this has to bode well for him. I think one of the takeaways that I have was that Peter Sagan impressed me. Yeah, me too. Um, I know that Pashi Vila before the race said, oh, this race is perfect for Peter Sagan, but I didn't think so coming into this race. I'm thinking, you know, that's a lot of climbs. That's a lot of surgy um, efforts. You know, especially last year, we saw Greg Van Avermaet suffering on the Kreuzberg, and I tend to think of them as very similar riders. And and on form, Greg Van Avermaet couldn't make the final group last year. So to see Peter Sagan make that final group with relative ease, I thought was very impressive. Yeah. If you look at Sagan's participations in this race over the years, and there are not many, but you will see two, you will see a podium finish and then this one, which he was definitely up there. So I think it's a race that if he actually focused on the Amstel Gold race and possibly even Liege, I don't really know what he's capable of. There are definitely races where he could be a contender. But to do that, you kind of have to, uh, I don't want to say it's impossible to win Roubaix and Liege the same year, but the training required for that, the body type required for those two different wins, it's it's pretty hard, I think, to do both of those things in the modern era, at least. Uh, another huge takeaway, wow, impressive ride by Lawson Craddock. You know, the American made the early breakaway. He, I don't think he was the strongest guy in that breakaway. I think Eddie Dunbar was punishing everybody, but maybe he punished people a little bit too much and punished himself, himself. out of that break. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Lawson Craddock was able to survive with that front group for most of the finale. He was tailed off there at the end, but didn't blow up and no. cruised in for eighth place. I was expecting a crack at some point. Especially if you're if you haven't seen it, by the way, go look at the video of him uh, crashing into a car headlong like a week ago. Yeah, putting a dent into somebody's car, and to go from that to finishing top ten at Amstel, and it wasn't a fluke top ten. I mean, he was he looked good the whole race, and he he got kind of tailed off a little bit in the break every now and then, but he fought his way back, and then yeah, he he didn't blow up in a group of big favorites: Valverde, Alaphilippe, Sagan, Wellens. I mean, they were all there, and. There's Lawson Craddock. So definitely hats off to him. And, you know, I feel like Lawson Craddock needed a ride like this. Definitely. Uh, 2017 was kind of a disappointing season for him. He was sick for a good chunk of the season. Yeah. He did not finish the Colorado Classic. I know we were all surprised by that. Uh, a rider of his caliber not finishing a domestic race. And it was a contract year for him. And EF Education first brought him back. You know, shows they have a ton of faith in him and his talent. And I feel like, you know, a ride like this at Amstel is confirmation of what we already knew. Yeah. He's a class rider. He has that talent. He can get up there. Yeah, he, he definitely needed something like uh, any result really to show that the form is is there and he still has that ability. Because last year, I remember I talked to him towards the end of last year. And, and it, even like a race like uh, like the Tour of Guangxi at that point was going to be an opportunity for him to show something. So it, to get a top 10 in Amstel, which is a, a couple of steps above like a Guangxi level race. That's definitely a, a nice way for him to kind of round back in. And hopefully he'll continue to do that. I mean, I don't really know what to expect from going forward, but he certainly seems to be in good shape. Chapeau, Lawson Craddock. We're going to be keeping wa- watching you. Maybe this is going to be uh, Tour de France. Tour de France. Yeah, this is coming the, up. This is the problem whenever you have like a relatively good performance and everybody's like, okay, so you're going to be in the Tour de France now or... <laughs> Dane, we also had a women's race go on to the Amstel Gold Race. The um, women's 
Amstel is the beginning of perhaps the most important block of racing for the Women's World Tour, and that is the Ardennes block. There's a Women's Amstel. There is a Liege-Biston-Liege and a Flesh Wallone. And, you know, coming into this race, I think we were all looking at Anna Vanderbregen to repeat what she did um, at Stratabianca. And the Tour of Flanders go on another one of her patented Anna Vanderbregen solo breakaways. But it didn't happen. Instead, it was a teammate. Yeah, a world champion teammate, mm. which is nice to have those sometimes. Yeah, she said a couple times that she uh, she wants to win races that she hasn't won before, which I kind of mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago after Flanders could be a glimmer of hope for the rest of the peloton that maybe Anna von der Bregen's like, okay, you know, I've already won Amstel, so I don't really need to go that hard. So I, in one sense, sure, I guess. In the other sense, she has Chantal Black as a teammate. And behind Chantal Black, there were two or three other riders on that team that could have won. So I, I don't know how much of a glimmer of hope it is if you're not a Bulls rider. But Black looked really good. I mean, Black just by herself looked very, very strong. And this was not this was not the kind of thing where uh, it was all up to the team. I mean, Black kind of spurred a, a late attack of 20K or so to go, brought a couple of riders with her. And then from that group of six or so, I think it was, she was definitely the strongest rider and, and just... Uh, she crushed the sprint and was clearly the, the the best rider up there on the road. So maybe if Van der Breggen had been up there, she would have won the race. But Black was was no slouch either. So no, and she had class riders alongside her. She had a Longo Longo Borghini, um, Alexis Ryan yeah, was in Brand. there. Lucinda Brand, yeah. very strong racer, and it was Black who initiated the attack on the Cowberg that really thinned it out to about six riders. And then when uh, Brand and some other riders started attacking the final time of the Cowberg, Black looked really yeah, comfortable. No trouble at all. Yeah. She's just kind of sitting in the wheel. She looks sort of like the same way Valverde often looks when people try to drop him before a sprint. He just kind of sits there like, it's not happening. And then, yeah, she just crushed the sprint as as probably they knew she was going to do. So, no, no real way that they were able to to avoid her winning the race, which is kind of probably what everybody feels like going up against Bulls this these days. Like they can't do anything. What what are they supposed to do? There's no tactics really. I, yeah, I just got done editing a story about such a topic. You can find it in the upcoming issue of Velo News. But one of the takeaways from some of the other directors, sportives, this is from both Sunweb and Canyon Srams, basically saying we need we need to attack Bulls more. But that's the hard part because, like, how do you attack the team? I mean, it's like the quick step conundrum. How do you attack the team that has all the riders who do the attacking? It's a lot easier said than done. I mean, it sounds like, so, okay, maybe there is a solution, but is it possible to actually do that? I don't, I don't really know about that. Well, no rainbow curse going on for Chantal Block. Congratulations to Definitely her. Definitely not, yeah. You know, Dane, before we uh, close up this section on the Ardennes, I want to talk about the upcoming races because we have both Flesh Wallone and we have Liege Bastogne Liege. And these are exciting races that finish with climbs. Flesh Wallone famously cl- finishes with the climb up the Mur de Huy. The race tends to be somewhat formulaic, coming down to a sprint up this very steep climb that goes through a neighborhood in Belgium. I've walked up it many, many times before. Um, it's it's a charming race. It's like a Wednesday afternoon. People get out of work early. They go drink beer on top of this hill and cheer for the bike riders as they come by. And then we have uh, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, which is in Liège, and it's industrial, and it's kind of dark, and People are covered in soot and it's rainy and the course goes by a broken down factory and a really ugly soccer stadium. And it's just, 
you know, I, I appreciate the race for its history, but it is an ugly race. Sort of feel bad for Liège because as a classic, it has to go up against either the, the sort of the northern cobbled classics, which have so much excitement and, and uh, local fans really come out for, for both Roubaix and for Flanders. It's a, like a national holiday in Flanders, a tour of Flanders. You got to go up against that or these like really scenic races like Lombardia, which is just gorgeous, and, and uh, San Remo, which finishes along the coast. And then you have Liège, which they don't have the same local fan support as a race like Flanders, and they definitely don't have the same scenery as Lombardia. Well, and once you get out of Liège proper, it becomes very beautiful. The Ardennes are stunning this time of year. Well, depending if it's pouring rain or not. Hoofelise is very nice. Some of these other small towns they go through, Trois-Pont, the, you know, they all have this history because that's where the Battle of the Bulge was. When I went there. I went with my dad. We went to all these like cool museums. The climbs are difficult. The scenery is great. But then you just, you know, as a viewer, I always tune in for the end and I'm like, oh yeah, there they are going by the the box factory that makes rusty pipes. Yep. They're still making rusty pipes there. Well, yeah. Connecticut has races too. I mean, there's there's races in those places. They have to have races. And, and this is, happens to be a very old and prestigious one. So it's still entertaining in some ways, I think. So Flesh Malone, you know, there's not much to say about that race. Comes down to the sprint up the Mur de Huy. But Liège-Bastogne-Liège is an interesting one because I do feel like it's a race that has changed. Our very own Andrew Hood wrote about this topic last year for the magazine in a story that basically said, in this, the new, quote-unquote, cleaner era of cycling, where we don't know if they're 100% clean, but they're not using complete, you know, body-altering drugs like EPO and hardcore, you know, um, blood transfusions. Or at least not at the same amounts. Not at the same amounts. <laughs> Um, these races have become a little boring. Yeah. Or at the very least, they've become a little subdued because you're not seeing big solo moves going from 40K out when Frank Vandenbroek is attacking up La Redoute in the big ring and doing so while he's breathing out of his nose. And you're not seeing, you know, groups of guys just really throwing haymakers at each other with like 70, 80K to go. Instead, you're seeing a diminished Peloton make its way towards Liège. There's a few surges, guys fall out, and then it really comes down to the tactics of the last two kilometers or so. Yeah, and you see people on Twitter complain about, oh, man, I w what's happened to these races? Like, oh, how come they, they don't race like they used to? Well, I think it's pretty clear why they don't race like they used to. And it's kind of hard for me to blame some of these riders sometimes. Like, people get on a, a Valverde or a Garens for sitting in the wheels and waiting till that sprint, but it works. So what, what are you going to ask them not to do that? It's what wins the bike race. Yeah, I think you really have to look at the dynamics of the racing and say, is does it really behoove me to try to go on the uh, Cote de Roche of Falcons 20K to go when I might just blow up because I already have 200 and whatever kilometers in my legs? It's And it's another one like Amstel. It's very long. It's very hilly. The climbs are steep. They're not long. But just to make it to the top requires this huge, you know, near maximum effort. And when you do that all day, combined with windy, twisty roads where you have to be on it, just physically guys don't have that uh, pep in their step like they used like to. Maybe and I think it, it, it goes without saying, we're glad those days are behind sure. us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as fun as it is to go back and watch YouTube clips from like 2003 of these guys just pedaling like their bicycles are about to fall apart. 
I think we can we can be thankful that yeah okay if what we have to put up with is a group of fifteen guys coming into three k to go at Liège you know I think that's a good trade off yeah and there's still exciting things to watch you just have to accept that it's going to be different but there's still tactics there's still uh, fighting going on inside the peloton you're just not going to see somebody attack from fifty k out as often but maybe Tim Wellens will win this race one day so that's a possibility that's true Tim Wellens we've got our eyes on you uh, my. Favorite Liège in recent memory was, of course, the Dan Martin 2013 Liège when um, Perito attacked, got his gap. I thought he was going to hold it, but since this is Liège and everyone already had, you know, 800 kilometers in their legs already, he just started really, really slowing down. And then Dan Martin attacked out of the group just as a man was running behind him in a panda outfit. Iconic. And we got yeah. the great image and video of Dan Martin, who somehow got nicknamed the Panda, uh, riding in front of a giant man in a panda. Just giant panda. It almost overshadowed the win. That, yeah. that awesome image, I feel like. So if you are listening to the Villains podcast and you happen to listen, live in Liège, um, go get a big I, – I wouldn't say panda. Maybe some other zoo animal costume and wait there on the uh, last climb, the Côte de Saint-Nicolas. And um, – you know, mind the mind the nice people walking around there. You might get stabbed or shivved, but uh, yeah, wait for the bike race. Well, I feel like it, that also. I mean, that brought a lot of positive press to this race. So if you want people like Fred and me to to stop talking about how your city's industrial looking, this is clearly the way to do it. You dress up as a zoo animal and you run behind a rider, and, and that's what we'll talk about after the race instead of yeah the soot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Did you see that guy by the rusty pipe factory yeah. dressed up as Tigger? I guess Great. We'll still mention the Rusty Pipe Factory, but at least we're focusing on other things. Yeah. So, Dane, who's your pick? Well, I can't really pick against Valverde for Liège. I mean, I, I am going to. Well, okay. So let's hear who's the pick of, of Fred. I think that Tim Wellens is going to have learned from his many failed long breakaway attempts, and he's going to holster that guy. He's going to holster it right until right before the left hand turn. And that's when he's going to unleash his winning move. I'd love that. With Wellens, it's always weird to me that he goes so far out because he's not. Like, he's not Nicky Terpstra. He doesn't win time trials like Nicky Terpstra does. He's just, he, he's a classics guy who can climb really well. And yet he still, he still goes from like 40K out or 30K out. Maybe he just really likes to entertain the fans. I don't know what it is, but. He's that kid in your junior high school class who like couldn't sit still. He was like waiting for the bell to ring. And it's just like all over the place, you know? And you're like, hey man, calm down. Like, we'll, we'll get out of here soon enough. And maybe you'll win Liege one And day. maybe you'll win Liege. So, Dane. Before we get to the second half of the show, we want to say thank you again to Feedback Sports, our sponsor this week. Feedback Sports, makers of some of the most innovative and space-saving technology out there in the bicycle world. They make trainers, they make work stands, they make bike stands and tools. Check out their website. And again, if you see any Feedback Sports people hanging out at your local race, which you may because they are definitely a presence at a lot of regional races, go up and say hello. Okay, Dane, you know, in addition to the hilly classics going on in Europe, we have the domestic season here in the United States heating up. In fact, we had our first big domestic stage race the Joe Martin stage race go on this past weekend. This coming week, we have Tour of the Gila down in New Mexico. Then we have the Redlands Bicycle Classic. And all these races are getting some of these guys ready for the – guys and gals ready for the Amgen Tour of California. Historically, these races 
um, have have served as a bit of tune-up races for the Tour of California. Yeah, I think uh, with with Joe Martin, you saw a lot of on the men's side. I think some of the teams in Joe Martin, because of the upgrade for California, it's going to be tough to, for a lot of those teams to be there. But the women's side, I mean, United Healthcare just kind of dominated uh, that race, and they're they're going to be a presence, I think, absolutely in the in the women's Amgen Breakaway race. So yeah. yeah, it looks like Katie Hall was able to take the win at uh, Joe Martin um, stage win coming from Chloe Digard Owen, who got second on another stage. Interesting to see the track star. Um, going over to the road, she famously raced road worlds a few years back and, oh, she had a little bit of success there, but, um, seeing her winning some stages, uh, in the pro roadside, I happen to wonder if that means more road racing for her, maybe after Tokyo 2020, perhaps over in Europe. Yeah. You kind of forget when you see her results, sometimes how young she is. She just turned 21. So even after Tokyo, she's still going to be a young up and coming rider. And I think that just has so much, she has so much promise for the road and for the track and pretty much anything else I think she ever wants to try to do. <laughs> so in the men's race, we saw the Holowesco Citadel team have a tremendous amount of success where we had Ruben Campagnone win the overall. Um, this is a really good start for Holowesco Citadel, aka Tim, Team Hincapi. They raced over in Europe earlier this month doing Tour of the Ardennes and a few other smaller races. And actually, I think they, they got some stage wins. I think this, this team is hot. I think they're, they're really trying to build towards this block of racing and into the Tour of California. Yeah, they've had a couple of wins. I think they've had five UCI-level wins already this year. They won a stage at Tour de Normandie. They won um, at uh, stage at Circuit des Ardennes. And then three wins, two two stage wins and the overall win at uh, Joe Martin. Campagnoni kind of kind of dominated the race. I mean, he won the first stage and he was the leader all the way through the end of the race. So definitely a, a statement from Holowesco going into this this block of U.S. races. Well, so the team that they're going to be battling at at this block of races is the Rally Pro Cycling team. And I spoke with Rally Pro Cycling team's Rob Britton, winner of last year's Tour of Utah, about this block of racing. I asked him, what's the significance? How hard are these races? What's the what's the key to winning these races? So let's have a little check-in with Rob Britton to hear about the domestic races. Okay, Fred Dreyer here with Rob Britton. We're going to talk about the domestic racing schedule in the spring because we have some races coming up. We have Joe Martin going on right now. Actually, by the time listeners get to this, Joe Martin will have already passed. Sorry, listeners. But then we have the Tour of the Gila and we have the Redlands Bicycle Classic and these lead up to the Tour of California. So, Rob, the first question I have for you is like, how do these races rank in terms of prestige these domestic stage races which is the most prestigious um i mean to me i think tour of Hila is the most prestigious uh just it's an incredibly hard race you know before the utahs and colorados it was like the hardest altitude race we had um but you know redlands itself is you know i've seen more guys win redlands and go on to world tour teams than any other race in north america so I'd say between those two, uh, they're definitely the two big, um, you know, stage races been around forever in, uh, you know, the American scene, the NRC scene. And, uh, then, uh, yeah, like I guess, uh, Joe Martin, unfortunately is the redheaded stepchild of the three of them. <laughs> well, what about the, the block of racing as it pertains to the tour of California? 
like these three races, they come almost back to back weekends. It seems like it's a pretty important building block and sort of racing block to get ready for California. Right. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I want to say, uh, that about Joe Martin, it's like, it's a great race to, and I guess now it kind of, uh, with the way things have uh, changed a bit in North America with Redlands not being the first race, Joe Martin's kind of that first race guys get to, um, you know, all the big teams get together and uh, kind of suss out how everyone's doing in the spring. And um, they're hard races. Like every, I've done all three of them now and a few times and uh, like they're really hard and they get guys in really great shape for California and they're also like, you know, if you win one of these bike races, you're a legit bike racer, you know, um, like Locke and Morden won Tour of Hilo, goes on to win, or goes on to World Tour team, like, you know, Phil Gaiman wins Redlands twice, both years, I think he ended up going to World Tour team. So it's like, these are good reflections of like the quality of these races and kind of what that bike means in the big picture. You know, since these races fall early in the year, do you see a difference from one race to the next in terms of like, I don't know, guys getting remembering how to ride in a pack and guys remembering how to race? Is there a bit of a learning curve that happens throughout these races? Uh, no, not now. Like, just because most guys um, will have done at least a couple races. Like, well, these are the first bigger races in North America you know, in California and, you know, any Southern part, like Southern States are going to have done a few lead up races. Like, I don't know if Madera and Merco are still happening in Cali, but like Chico and these kind of things, um, San Dimas, like those are the races where you see guys like kind of like banging off the rust and trying to like, remember, you know, myself included, um, you know, following those first few attacks, like snaps you back to reality and like training is not the same as racing, but, um, yeah, now it's, uh, by the time I like, went to Gila, um next week, I'll have done, I think, 11 UCI race days already this year. Most guys will have, you know, somewhere between five and a dozen race days in their legs. So everyone's pretty uh, pretty sharp and knows what they're doing at this point. Well, let's get into each race. Let's start off with Joe Martin. With Joe Martin, what tends to be the hardest thing about Joe Martin? And what also tends to be the trick to winning Joe Martin? Uh, the trick to winning Joe Martin, I guess, is be Robin Carpenter because he seemed to figure it out pretty well last year. <laughs> Just ride away in the crit and <laughs> the wet, super technical crit and drop everyone. But uh, yeah, I mean, Joe Martin is, um, I think they changed it this year a bit, but basically it, it's have a great uphill time trial. And, you know, if you're someone like John Murphy a couple of years ago, you can win the whole thing by just having a good good enough time trial and then winning every stage and getting time bonuses along the way. Um, because I think they offer time bonuses at, in every stage, um, and quite a few time bonuses in the crit as well. So you can be 45 seconds down and then without ever having like a gap in the field, um, win the overall by getting like 10, like 10, 15 seconds, you know, every day. Um, so yeah, the trick I think is you have to have a very good, you know, time trial and like not lose too much time but uh then you have to you have to be either a very good bike handler and like take time back in the crit or you know pick up seconds here or there or have a very very strong team that can defend it all week 
you know a lot of these races touch on different regions like different regional racing scenes so with joe martin how would you describe sort of the regional teams regional cat ones that tend to come out to those races how, where are their strengths uh it's tough i've only done joe martin twice my first year pro and then last year um yeah i mean i think like the uh you, you can tell there's a line in the sand in the uh the uphill time trial like the professional guys typically early stack the top 10 but um when it comes down to i think all the finishes are more or less like field sprints and uh yeah i think the local guys like are not you know not worried to get their uh to get their hands dirty and get right in there and like scrap for the finish so they're definitely scrapping like the last day's crit is probably one of the hardest ones in uh in the u.s scene just like with uh it, it's technical nature but also it's freaking wall and like you know finish it and you go up it every time so yeah all right moving on to gila what's the hardest part about gila and what tends to be the trick to winning gila uh, being good at altitude is probably the biggest trick um whether or not that's doing prep or just like living at altitude or being naturally good at it but um heal is really two things it's having a good mogion so you don't lose too much time and then having a great time trial if you can do those two things um you know you if you can do both of those you're going to be okay on the last day i mean that's how uh i won it <clears throat> the year i did and uh that's how uh huffman won last year you know he had a good mogion albeit shortened and um then just smoked the time trial and we had a team that was like exceptional and i think we rode over um the gila monster and we had a group of nine and uh we had four so it's um you know if if you come with your a game and you're fit like yeah it's it's a great fitness race because it's just hill like hilltop finish and then you know big hilly time trial on a big hilly last day like it's uh yeah be fit have a good good climb and a good time trial and the same with gila you know gila gets a lot of riders from colorado New Mexico, Utah, a lot of the mountain states, um, regional pro teams or Cat One elite teams. Mm -hmm. And you know, how would you um, how would you describe those riders and the racing scene at Gila? Yeah, it's always interesting um, seeing uh, what like you know like what local guys are going to be there. And we saw sometimes it can be a bit sketchy because you have just so many guys of varying abilities like i think in 2014 um just because of like those varying skill sets we had like a massive crash i don't think i've ever seen something so big um just because you you do have you know some top level pros and then also like some guys who are in there like this might be their their big race of the year their first time doing a big race and everybody has those races so um but it, it's neat because altitude racing is, is a whole different beast. So you see, you'll see guys rolling in and it's just, it is something they've never experienced before. Like the pain and agony that you can experience on that, uh, that last day I've seen it. Like I've been a part of like groups where it's just broken souls. Cause it's just the heel is the closest thing to like, you know, a tour of California or a tour of Utah where it's just like that last stage is just, you know, brutally hard if you're not ready for it and i've been not ready for it once before and it's like 
yeah, you look around and like I say, it's just it's just broken souls. But it's cool to see guys like Sepkus or something come out and just be like raring to go and like right up there on like stage one when he was on uh, like I think Harley Davidson or something like this. So yeah, and Sep also had that great ride at tour of uh, at the Redlands Bicycle Classic. So you know, same set of questions about Redlands. Um, what does Redlands usually come down to, and and what tends to be the hardest part of Redlands? Yeah, you know, they've changed it um, since the last time I've done it. They, I've never done it with uh, the Oakland uh, Mountaintop Finish. Um, but with that now, I think that's a major part of it. And it, I think, starts to mirror um, heel in that sense. Like, have a good Oakland and then have either do damage control in the time trial or try to, you know, move back up in the time trial. And then um, you can definitely still uh lose it all on that last day the sunset loop i've seen guys win it and i've seen guys lose it i've been a part of both um i helped uh man sabo actually i guess he did get second that year but uh helped him try to win it um the year on competitive cyclists and i was guest riding with them and every year they kind of change how the uh finishing circuit works out and like the time where the time is actually taken um but yeah, I've also been a part of it when Travis McCabe had the lead our first year on Smart Stop. And uh, yeah, I cramped up brutally hard. And like, I was his last guy to help him close the gap to Joey Roscoff. And because of that, like, he was on his own and we lost the race by, you know, a handful of seconds. And that was like, that was brutal. And so, yeah, I think um, you have to have a good Oakland, a good TT, and then just things have to kind of go your way on the last day because it can change like last year i think you know the tt like california is so weird at that time of year like in the tt and the like oakland guys are you know falling off the bike because they're dehydrated and like you know cramping so hard and then for sunset like i think Gavin Mannion had hypothermia afterwards so it's uh like yeah anything can happen on the last day because it does just wear on you like the you just like it's relentless you're either pedaling downhill or you're going right back up. So, yeah. What are your goals for the next block of racing then? Yeah. Um, so I've had quite a bit of time off since racing, um, in, I guess, early March. So he'll kind of be that first race back. Uh, and I mean, I'd like to win it again. That's always kind of the goal going there. I think I've been in the top five or the top 10 a lot. So, um, winning it again would be good and then uh but honestly yeah everything's kind of like preparation for california at this point that's 100 percent the goal um probably going back into a gc role and not uh as an aggressive um kind of breakaway goal unless you know things change things can change pretty easily in that race just like last year but yeah probably go back into a gc goal and try to ride my way up as far as i can to that with uh the teams that are coming that'll be a good challenge i think awesome thanks a lot rob thanks okay well that's what rob Britton has to say you know i'm with rob i think that gila is probably the hardest of those races to win but you know historically that Redlands Bicycle Classic did graduate a lot of people to the world tour. So I don't know, kind of up in the air. Um, Dane, we are joined right now by Dan Cavallari, tech editor of Velo News. 
because Dan is going to become a regular guest on the Velonies podcast to talk to us about some of the things going on in the world of tech. And Dan is going to be launching a podcast of his own. Dan, what, tell me about this podcast. What's the show going to be about? I am launching it straight into the stratosphere. I am uh, covering all things tech. Uh, the idea is to uh, talk about complex topics regarding to tech, uh, regarding tech that uh, maybe need to be distilled down into simpler terms so we all understand. There's, there's a lot of really com- complicated terms we often throw around in the tech world, and I want to get down to the heart of it. And so I will be seeking out people who are much, much, much smarter than me to explain those terms. Uh, we call them experts. Ooh. Yes. <laughs> Can they explain things in terms that even I will understand, Dan? I, I mean, let's, we can't pray for miracles here. Uh, Do your best. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the idea is to just uh, get a sense of what these complicated terms mean and, and how they affect uh, the next bike you're going to buy. Uh, so I've got a few podcasts episodes recorded and that'll be hitting the airways pretty soon awesome so yeah. are people gonna like come on and tell me why my bike creaks <laughs> when i ride it that's because you're a bad rider oh <laughs> man hot takes i know coming in hot that's just a case of bad riding right there i love it well dan what have you come to talk to us about this week from the world of tech i understand there are a number of things going on we have tire manufacturers we have new bikes we have dirt what's yeah. what's going on so so much and, and this is typical of uh, the days leading up to a trade show and we've got sea otter coming up this week and so we're seeing a lot of uh, new tech drop uh, some of it we can talk about some of it we can't but uh, it seems like one of the more interesting stories we're seeing uh, is that a lot of the new tech is focusing on the dirt side mountain bike and gravel and we've seen uh, just this last week we saw the reappearance of the venerable brand Marzoka uh, who we, they got sold a few years ago after some troubles and the, the brand really diminished. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Marzocchi was sort of a legendary brand in the mountain bike world. They the were, bomber. The bomber, man. It was a, it was a bomber of a fork and it weighed about as much as a stealth bomber. Uh, but it really set the trend and opened up, uh, new ways of people riding their bikes, a uh, free ride and all mountain. And it really set the trend for what suspension was to become. So Marzocchi then essentially bit the dust. And Fox uh, bought them a few years ago. And for a couple of years, it's just been sort of quiet. Uh, but we just got word that Marzocchi is back in the game and they're making forks again. Uh, and they'll be sort of a complement to Fox's lineup of suspension. So not, not replacing it, but just sort of uh, going concurrently with it. Uh, not quite the, the big budget forks that we have come to know, but uh, it'll be a little bit different bent there. But it's really exciting to see them back on the scene. And really the bigger story beyond that is gravel. We're seeing gravel brands galore pop up. That means uh, not only bikes, but also peripheral components like tires. And we know now know about Canyon's goofy double handlebar, things like that. The biplane. Yeah. And I think more intri- more intriguing to me anyway is uh, we now just saw Goodyear uh, enter the tire brand, the bicycle tire brand. They Their first product ever 120 years ago was a bicycle tire, and now they're back. And that brings up a good question. Why in the world are they coming back to bike tires now? Um, and I think there's two a two-pronged answer to that. One is gravel. And there, that excitement with, uh, with gravel, I think it, it lends another, uh, another user group. And so it's sort of growing the bicycle market. But still, I mean, even so, I mean, Goodyear makes a lot of money off of car tires. Why in the world would they come to the bike world just for gravel? Well, they're not. 
the bigger, I think, the bigger intrigue, and we saw Pirelli do enter the market not too long ago for the same same reason. I think uh, is actually the growth of e-bikes. Mm. Um, it's not so big here yet, but it will be. And in Europe, it is it is definitely uh, growing uh, very very rapidly. And I think the reason that Pirelli and Goodyear both saw this as a good opportunity is not so much that people are buying e-bikes, is that in order to make a good margin off of tires, which rubber is expensive, um, small brands don't get as much of a, mar- a, a margin because, you know, the rubber is expensive. Their bottom line is, is definitely a more tenuous thing. Goodyear and Pirelli both have resources to pour into this. So these big brands are coming in on the bet of uh, volume of tires. And so it's, it's a big moment because this sort of, in a sense, legitimizes the cycling industry as something worth investing in, which is a a big deal. So do you see this as a case of a brand coming in on the racing end, trying to make a, get, get, gain some credibility and then branching more into the commuter space? Because like you said, you know, the, the commuter dollars are where a brand like Goodyear Mm -hmm. is really going to see a return versus like, you know, some road racers like us buying fancy tires. Right. It's interesting because both Pirelli and Goodyear have both, uh, at least on the road side, neither of them are making really quote unquote race tires. Uh, Goodyear is, is, has basically has one road tire and three widths and it's a tubeless ready, uh, basically training Grand Fondo type tire. It's not a cotton casing. It's not, you know, this fast rolling tubular. And Pirelli, I think, just developed a tubular, but it's only available to the pros at the highest levels of the sport. So they're not really entering the market at the pro level. They're uh, they're entering the market at the everyday level. Mm-hmm. Uh, Goodyear came in with with I think something over a hundred SKUs. They started their bike tire business this year with over a hundred SKUs. That means a, a lot of products. And few, if any of those, are really geared toward the race racer, at least on the road end. Uh, on the mountain side and on the gravel side, there's more options because I think that's those are the two growing segments right now. Mm, that's interesting. Well, we're going to be keeping our eyes open for some of those stories here at Sea Otter. I know I'll be at Sea Otter. Dan, you will also be at Sea Otter. Leonard will be at Sea Otter. There's, we're going to have a whole VeloNews fighting force at Sea Otter. So if you see any of us out there, please... Come say hello. Dan, are you, I mean, what what are you excited about heading into Sea Otter? You know, it's funny. I've, I, in all the years I've been in the bike industry, I've actually never been to Sea Otter. Uh, so mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see some racing. Uh, usually when I'm at these these trade shows, it's a lot of walking around and seeing new product. But there's never any real, like, fun events to go spectate. So that will be cool. Uh, but in terms of tech, uh, I think, I mean, gravel is the big thing right now. So uh, as somebody personally who's been sort of slow to embrace gravel, I'm excited to see what brands are doing to make an entirely new segment of cycling fun and interesting uh, and and technologically advanced uh, in the ways that we've done with road bikes and mountain bikes. Well, we're super hot on gravel. You know, like I said at the top of the show, we sent Spencer out to the Belgian Waffle Ride. He was at Land Run a couple months ago. And it's just about suffering and putting himself through the physical test that is riding around on gravel and then having us uh, ask him about it. <laughs> I'd like Spencer and Chris Case do all the suffering and we yeah. just we ask a lot about we it. We analyze the suffering. You know. Yeah, yeah they're, they've basically become professional cyclists. What have I let happen? What, have, <laughs> what am I doing over here? Uh, Fred, we can't edit a pages today. We have to go, uh, go train. So guys, before we get out of here, thank you, Dan, for that. Yeah. Um, we have to do a little off the front, off the back, what is hot and what is not in the world of cycling this week, we've had racing go on 
on all of these different continents all over the place. Um, so Dane, I am going to look to you for what is hot and what is not first. Yeah, my off the front's going to be Astana right now. Peyo Bilbao won the opening stage of the Tour of the Alps. Uh, Luis Leon Sanchez was second in the opening stage of the Tour of the Alps. And, of course, Michael Valgren just won Amstel. So Astana having a pretty good uh, couple of days here. And heading into the Ardennes, I think they got to be pretty happy about the uh, the way that that whole team rode at, at Amstel. So both, uh, both ends of the European uh, continent, uh, the north and the south, doing pretty well so far. And then off the back, yeah, nobody really, as we kind of talked about at Amstel, nobody was really worthy of too much of a thumbs down. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll put Team Sky off the back right now. Pretty lackluster performance in Amstel. And let's go to the Tour of the Alps again. Chris Room doesn't want to talk about his case right now. So what's there to really talk about until Chris Room actually does anything in terms of getting results? So yeah, Sky, they're not too far off the back. They're, they're just kind of lollygagging a little bit. Yeah, I like that Chris Froome is basically like, I don't want to give a running update of everything that's going on, which, you know, as as critical of as we have been of Team Sky and of Chris Froome, like, I get that, man. Yeah, yeah. That's got to be kind of annoying. Every single race you go to, that's all they're asking about. It, it must really be kind of a bummer if you're not Chris Froome, but you're at those races because nobody wants to talk to you. They just want to swarm the Sky bus. Well, I think that most of those questions are actually going to Chris Froome like, seeking an explanation because it's become so muddled and so muddy at this point that even journalists are like, hey, Froome, like, what's, what, what is going on? Yeah, what's yeah. going on? Could you, uh, explain this to me? Oh, you can get your lawyer to do it. Oh, okay. Thanks, yeah, man. Yeah. 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 Chris Froome's just like, beat it, journalist. <laughs> um, all right. What I'm going to put as off the front right now is I'm going to put Chloe Daggard Owen, uh, fourth wonder of the world because she won this road race. She got second place in another one. She's crushing it. We've known that she's a super talent and that, uh, you know, in an interview I did with her last year, she had talked about someday maybe hoping to do more road racing. And so, hey, Joe Martin, I mean, I know it's not exactly a women's world tour race, but here she is doing it and having some, having some great success. Way to go, Chloe Digger Owen. Um, off the back, you know, my main man, Greg Van Avermaet, a year ago was riding so high. He had a great classic season. He dominated. It seemed like every time he'd put in an effort, he would get a gap. And his efforts came at the right moments. And this year, watching him in Amstel, it wasn't just that he doesn't have the same strength as last year. But his attacks are looking a little on the desperate side. So he tried to bridge to that front group, put in a ton of effort, and just blew up just didn't work out, you yeah. know, and that was kind of it for him. And so as much as I really do appreciate watching Greg Van Avermaet race, he is off the back. Yeah, I felt similarly throughout the whole classics when I, when I would do these podcasts with Hoodie and we were talking about who was disappointing us. I never really wanted to say Van Avermaet because he was up there. But uh, yeah, we've now gone through Amstel and he just did come away with a single win or even really he didn't even come that close to winning anything. Yeah, uh. bummer. Dan, any off the front, off the back from your world? Oh, sure, sure. I think uh, off the front is uh, the unsung hero, the Allen Wrench set. Mr. Peter Sagan has made that sexy again mm -hmm. uh, with his uh, on-the-fly adjustments uh, to his uh, stem. Now, I... I'm just hoping that this leads to the custom Peter Sagan Allen wrench set that people can use on the fly on their next ride. Uh, I think this is a big opportunity finally for tool makers. He's never been shy about signing up for endorsement. That's true. So it's I very true. It's probably going to come. At somebody's some point. somebody's sitting on a gold mine right now. Yeah. Off the back, uh, gold paint jobs on bikes. Over it. 
over it, over it. Uh, GVA is rocking one. Peter Sagan's got one now. It's just, uh, it's just not doing it for me. I think it's time to branch out. I think with uh, Specialized, with their wonderful uh, custom paint job, it's time to get creative. Mm, my idea, tartan. Tartan. <laughs> yeah, plaid, plaid bikes. I like that, actually. It's yeah. different. bone. Yes. <laughs> nice plaid. Uh, plaid bike. Well, we would love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at webletters at competitorgroup.com. We'll also post links to the stories we talked about today on VelNews.com. Subscribe to the VelNews podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. And while you're there, please leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of VelNews on Facebook at facebook.com slash Magazine and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash VelNews. The VelNews podcast is produced by VelNews, which is owned by Pocket Outdoor Media. The thoughts and opinions expressed on the VelNews podcast are those of the individual and as always, we leave you with the Brooklyn Boogaloo blowout playing the Bernard Purdy classic, Soul Drums.